Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, we continue to give you thanks now for your word, for providing it for us through your prophets and apostles, for preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it even this morning read in a language that we generally understand. But yet, Lord, we cry out to you and ask for more than physical hearing and understanding. Lord, we need spiritual ears. We need spiritual understanding. So by your spirit and your goodness, would you grant that to us? I do pray for your people. I pray that through all the details of a passage like this, that they would see beyond the colors of threads and the types of stones but they would behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, you, Jesus, who fulfilled all that is before us today. May we delight in you and you alone. Oh God, would you help me, your servant? With that being the aim, I confess I need your help. Help me to speak clearly and without error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock, you are our rock, and our Redeemer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can learn a lot about a person just by what they are wearing. If you were to see a woman clothed in an ornate white dress, a long train proceeding behind her and a veil over her face, what would you say? She's a bride. Today must be her wedding day. If you were to see a man in an orange jumpsuit, perhaps the letters DOC on the back, cuffs of chains around his wrists and ankles, leaving a courthouse escorted by police officers, you'd say, yeah, he's a criminal. He must be going to prison. If you were to see a young girl standing outside with a full backpack and a lunchbox in her hand, waiting for the bus that's pulled up to open the door for her, what would you say? She's a student. She must be going to school. And if you showed up this morning and you saw me standing here, 
wearing a blue and maize sweater with the words Michigan Wolverines emblazoned across the front of it, what would you say? Yeah. Hey, that guy used to be our pastor. He's now looking for a new call. You see, what a person wears can tell you a lot about them. I didn't go through all the myriad details, but usually you can tell someone's vocation, maybe social status, sometimes even their aspirations. But that principle, this principle, is not unique to our time, for it's at least as old as the book of Exodus. In the chapters before us this morning, chapters 28, 29, and 30, we have, again, a lot of details. Details specifically about the clothing that is to be worn by the priests of Israel. Details about how the priests were to prepare themselves to even have the privilege of wearing this clothing as they perform their service to God. And in much the same way as we did last week, while looking at all the details of the tabernacle, we did that last week, that's laid out in chapters 25 through 27. It's my hope this morning that we don't just get bogged down in all the details, but rather I'm going to summarize the details contained here so that we together can gain a basic understanding, a basic understanding of the function of God's priesthood. I'd also like us to appreciate, this is a gospel-centered church, as I hope all churches are, we need to appreciate how this priesthood was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we need to begin to discover how the priesthood continues in and through us, not just me, but through all of us as we live for God in this world. So to help us achieve this end, and I know we need signposts on such a journey, I'm going to do so using three main points. So if you're taking notes, we'll have three main points today. The first of those is what I'll call the garments, the garments of the priest. That's our first point, the garments of the priest. Let's get a flavor for this. Turn to chapter 28, and let's look together at verses 1 through 5. Exodus 28, verses 1 through 5. God says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. If we were to keep going on, you would see that chapter 28 provides us with all the details, all the details of these garments and their accoutrements that are to be worn by Aaron, and in part, as you can see, all who would serve in God's priesthood, his sons and all those who would come after. Now, some of the garments are just for the high priests. Some of the garments are for all the priests. And you can read and see that clearly. I'm gonna look at the garments as a whole this morning. 
But the first thing I want us to see before we talk about each piece is I want to note right away that these garments are not being made to express or reflect what the priest is in himself. You understand? It's not that they're holy, so we're going to make holy garments for them. That's not why these are being made. They're being made to express that which the priest is to represent. These garments express what the priest is meant to be. They they express what his office ideally requires him to be. Because in his humanity, he's what? He's a sinner. He's sinful. His humanity is so tragically different than that which he is trying to represent. God. God in his holiness. So putting on these garments, even preparing himself to put on these garments, is a testimony. It's a proclamation. It's a proclamation to something, we would say someone outside of himself, that is so much greater. And because these garments are a testimony to God and his holiness, God cares what they look like and how they're made down to every last stitch. You see, we can say it this way. By nature, the priest is not a priest. By nature, the priest isn't a priest. He might be there by his line, as we'll see, but by nature, he's not a priest. He must be clothed as a priest, and he must be consecrated as a priest. So verse 4, you saw it there. It lists six parts of the garment that is to be worn by the priest. You saw a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, which is difficult Hebrew translation there. We'll just call it a tunic, a turban, and a sash. Verses 36 through 38 add a little bit here. They, they add the plate of pure gold that gets fashioned to the turban. And you can see there in 42 and 43, it adds underwear, linen undergarments. So let's consider these items more closely. I do want to look at them in some small detail. In verses 6 through 14, we learn what the ephod is. Some of you already know. Some of you may not know. It's basically an apron. It's a long sleeveless vest. It has two shoulder straps. And you'll notice in the text there, if you look, that each strap is to have an onyx stone upon it. On that onyx stone is to be engraved, those two stones, six on either side, the 12 sons of Israel. Six on one, six on the other. That according to, look at verse 12, it says that Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. We talked last week about the tabernacle. It's got the courtyard, which everybody can enter in to bring their sacrifices. Then there's the holy place, right? Where only the priests can go. And then there's the really, really, really holy place, right? The very holy place, what you might call the holy of holies, which is only where the high priest can go. So the idea here is, is as the high priest goes there, he bears the names of the sons of Israel. Maybe we should say it this way. He represents Israel, all of Israel. In verses 15 through 30, we have details of what's called the breast piece. Actually, literally, it says the breast piece of judgment. It's the breast piece of judgment. This contains a a small pouch, a small pouch worn on the chest, maybe a fanny pack. You can think of it that way. You know, worn around you so it's right here. 
I thought it was supposed to go around here, but I see everybody wearing them around here. It's confusing. And I wasn't going to dress up like this today, okay? I know some of you are disappointed. It's called the breast piece of judgment. It's a small pouch. It's worn here on the chest. And it's adorned with gemstones as well. In fact, it tells us there's four rows of three stones. Each stone, you already guessed, right? A name of one of the sons of Israel engraved on it. Now, the breast piece was also to hold, look in verse 30, something called the Urim and the Thummim. These are items that are just mentioned here as if the people knew exactly what they were. You can read, you can search these throughout the Old Testament, and you'll find that this is something that the priest used to discern the will of God. We don't exactly know what these were. We don't really even necessarily know what they look like or even how they were used, if they were tossed like stones. But they do demonstrate an important role. It shows that the priest is an intercessor for the whole people of God. He's to take the concerns of all the people of God before God to ask what is God's will. Not, should we be obedient or not to your law, right? We should always be obedient to God's law. But rather, when they were faced with something, search throughout the Old Testament, you'll see when something big is happening and they don't know what to do, then they turn to the Lord, they turn to the priest. The priest uses these things to help discern the will of God. We call it chance, right? Proverbs tells us that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. So even the decisions here, this is something that the priest had, and he used it to intercede and prayer on behalf of the people. Verses 31 through 43 detail the other parts of the priestly garments. You have the blue robe. Uh, The blue robe was to be worn under the ephod, over the tunic. Notice you'll see that it is to have bells sewn into the hemline. Uh, Lots of pomegranates, probably pointing back, the the fruit there is probably pointing back to Eden, but it's to have bells all around it. Those bells are quite functional. They serve as an audible reminder, right? When the priest was moving into the holy place, it was a reminder to everyone. Like you couldn't be quiet in this thing, I assume. Uh, He's going in there. Brace yourself, right? He's doing the holy work of God, right? So let's, let us rejoice that we have access through him. He's going in there. But beyond that, verse 35 is interesting, You can look there. It says that they're there. And when he comes out, right? Look at the last clause. So that he does not die. So the bells also let everybody else know. But in some sense, we're to gain from this is that it's an audible sign. And this is interesting because God sees and knows all things, right? But it's actually a sign that he's doing things the way it's prescribed. It's a, as some commentators say, it's a greeting for God as he goes in there. Hey, God, I'm here. It's kind of like when we talk about prayer, dear God. Do we really have to say dear God? He knows. (laughs) He's there. He hears us. It's still a way to say, to address him. It's a way that the priest is addressing the Lord as he comes forward. Because if those bells weren't jingling, jangling, he's not wearing what he's supposed to wear. And he would be struck down. So that's kind of an interesting tidbit there. Uh, Going back to the people on the outside, you may know this, that those bells were really helpful too, not just to know that he's in there, but if they stop, he goes in there and they're making noise and then they stop 
and they don't hear him for a while, uh uh-oh. You don't want to go in and get him out, okay? If you can't approach there, you can't. So they would literally tie a rope around him, and they'd just pull him out if he died. So the bells are interesting. They're interesting. I think just we can miss it. Don't forget how serious this is. As we talked about last week, God absolutely cares how we worship him. He absolutely cares. He's prescribed it for us in his word. We're not bound to this, but he still prescribes how we're to worship him. And so we must take it as serious as he does. The turban, you know what a turban is. It was made of fine linen wrapped around the head uh, and attached to it, we're told, is a golden plate. And that plate says, holy to the Lord. The plate is inscribed, holy to the Lord. I can't help but think, because we just finished going through the book of Revelation last year. Remember all the times that we're told that God's people in heaven have a seal upon their foreheads? 22.4, you might remember, you can turn there and look. There on that last day in heaven, it says uh, in, in Revelation 22.4 that we will see God's face. Not the face of Jesus, but we'll see the Father's face. We'll see God in all his glory and his name will be upon our foreheads, holy to the Lord. We will be holy to the Lord. On that day, we will all be finally and fully holy to him. I think this is a picture of that day to come. I mentioned that when we were in Revelation. That's a picture of that to come. The tunic or the coat of checker work that your ESV calls it, that's the basic garment for pretty much everybody. Um, It's basically a long robe, right? It's just a long robe that you would wear. Uh, and here we're told that there's an embroidered sash to go with it. That sash is pretty needed. It's a, a belt, secures the tunic in place where it needs to go. And then, of course, there's the underwear, the undergarments. They were made of linen and served uh, an obvious yet important function. You have to understand this, that it wasn't common in that day for people to wear undergarments. It just wasn't, you, everyone just wore a tunic. Right? There was nothing underneath that tunic. You just wore a tunic. But the priests had to wear this underwear. You know why? So that they wouldn't expose themselves to the Lord. We've actually seen this before in Exodus. Right? They're to wear this as they go up the mountain so that they don't expose themselves to the Lord. They're to be holy unto the Lord. People weren't used to this, but it's a picture also back to Eden where Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they were ashamed. Why? It says they were naked and they were ashamed. And so God covered them. God clothed them in such the same way he wants his people to be clothed. There's also some uh, things here. It was very common in the Canaanite and other religions of the day that um, intimacy was a common part of occult practice in worship, right? God wants none of that to be part of his worship, right? And so the priests are covered in this way. God is covering the nakedness of his priests who serve him in the temple. So all these garments then, uh, as you read through this passage, you'll see that they need to be, and of course, over in chapters later, 35 through 39, you'll see that they are made according to plan, and they serve to signify, like they serve to point to the fact that they've been set apart. You see these guys and what they're wearing, and you know that's their job. They're priests. They're going to the tabernacle. And this clothing, again, for those of you who want to see all the details, it matches the tabernacle. 
It's in the style and semblance of the tabernacle itself. It identifies the priest with the work of the tabernacle. They work in the sanctuary where God dwells. So that's the first thing. But this is important. The garments alone are not sufficient enough to identify the priest with his work. I said it earlier, the garments reflect God. They don't reflect any intrinsic value of the priest himself. He's a sinner, right? The, the garments reflect who God is and what God requires of his people. God's holy and he requires his people to be holy. The priest is to be holy to come before him. The priest then is the mediator between God and man. So he himself must go above and beyond to make himself holy. Remember, the clothing doesn't make him holy. He's a sinner ministering to sinners. So he must be made holy. He must be consecrated. So that's our second point this morning, the consecration of the priests. The consecration of the priests. Chapter 29 will detail all of this consecration. Look at verse one. It begins... Now this is what you shall do to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Continuing on, if you were to continue on there, you'll see that first they're to be washed from head to toe. They're supposed to undergo a special washing. This symbolizes spiritual cleansing. Next, they were to be clothed with all those garments mentioned in chapter 28. And then they were to take anointing oil, this special oil that they're even told how to make that. And they were to pour it upon their heads, even so much so that the, the oil would flow down the beard. Might make you think of Psalm 133 there. Uh, oil was to flow down. And verse 9 calls that ordination. We heard a good sermon from Mario a few weeks ago on ordination. It just means being set apart, granted spiritual authority for the act of service. So these priests are being consecrated, made holy, but also ordained, set apart for office, a practice we still continue today. Why didn't we pour oil on their heads? Okay, well, I got some motor oil out in the car. So chapter 29, if you continue to read, it'll detail the sacrifices necessary. What's required for the forgiveness of sin? The shedding of blood. So here it goes on to talk about sacrifices. There's the sacrifices for the initial ordination and then also there's sacrifices for their continued service. These sacrifices include a bull, a bull for a sin offering, as well as two rams, one of the rams was for a burnt offering. These are types of offerings for sin. And the other uh, was an offering of consecration. We might call it an offering of fellowship. Now the blood from these sacrifices is to be used in the cleansing, not only of the altar from where they will uh, offer these gifts, but also to cleanse them. Let's look at verses 19 through 21. We're in chapter 29, 19 through 21. God says, you shall take the other ram and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his son's garments with him. 
He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. This is interesting, isn't it? The picture here, for those of you who want to picture that in your mind, um, by blood, the cleansing by blood. The right ear, the right finger, the right toe, the right side, not that it's you know, going against people who are left-handed. It's just that's the side of authority and the side of favor. Think of son of my right hand, things like that. That's the idea. And so they're, giving the, they're getting this authority and the favor with God to, to walk into the holy place, to perform these functions, to hear from the Lord as he grants his will. That's the picture being used there. Now, uh, when they offer these sacrifices, you'll notice that some of the meat is burned up. Verse 18 says that when it's burned up, it's a, a pleasing aroma, uh, it's a food offering to the Lord. I'm already getting hungry thinking about the smell uh, of the meat cooking, uh, but that's a pleasing aroma even to the Lord, right? It's a food offering to him. Now notice what the other meat is, is to be used for. Look at 26 through 28. You shall take the breast of the ram of the ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion and you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest portion that is contributed <coughs> from the ram of ordination, from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. Now, this may be confusing to some of you, and I would encourage you to go to the book of Leviticus and read the first nine chapters. There is a detailed of each of the types of sacrifices and what they're used for and how the, some of the fellowship offering was quite literally a wave offering, right? So there was this stuff that was waved before the Lord. That's what it's speaking of there and some of the other things. But notice that as the people bring these rams for peace offerings, some of it goes to the priests. Remember these Levites, their portion was to be here with the tabernacle. They were to be supported by the congregation of Israel. And so the congregation of Israel brought in that which was there to support them. But beyond that, it's really interesting because remember what happened on the mountain when Moses goes up and then Aaron and the others go up, not as far as Moses, but almost as far, right? And then the elders come up part of the way. And if you remember back in chapter 24, what happened? They had a meal together. They ate a meal. What a great picture. God has descended on the mountain and they share a meal with him. I mean, what happens if I invite you over to share a meal with me? Does that mean that we're going to get in the ring and fight? Some of you are like, yeah, that'd be fun. No, we're enjoying each other's company. There's, that, that's a signi signification even today of peace. Let's have a meal together because we have peace together. So God has invited his people in to have a feast, to have a meal. And so this picture of the priest eating this food that was given by the people and they're eating it in service to God shows that there's a continued relationship. There's a continued fellowship. Those barriers that stand between us and God, at least in this dispensation, have been temporarily done away with. Of course, it's not permanently done away with until Christ, which we'll see in a moment. But in the old covenant, no. But still through this, they have access through this system, they have fellowship with God. This is a great picture. He is their God. He's their covenant God. He's your God. He's your covenant God. And we share a meal. We share a meal. We have peace and we have fellowship. Throughout chapter 29, we also learn that these sacrifices are perpetual. 
They're ongoing. 35 to 37 show that the entire ceremony of offering the bull and the rams was to be repeated for seven days. And when that service is finished, verses 38 through 42, which we read earlier, show that the priests were to offer two lambs every day following, every day, one in the morning and one in the evening. They were to offer them perpetually as a sign of devotion and so that there will be a pleasing aroma continued unto God. Having done all this and having continued to do all this, the priests now are prepared to serve. They're set apart as holy. They're consecrated. And then what happens? They set apart on their work of consecrating the people. So now that they're ready, now that they've washed themselves up, now that they've got themselves ceremonially ready to do, to do this work, then they do the work. And people start bringing their sacrifices. You see that in Leviticus and ongoing. People bring their sacrifices and they do it. And then they realize we're still sinners. And so they go through this process again. And then people come and go through the process. Day after day after day after day after day after day. So on and so forth. Priests must make themselves clean. They must consecrate themselves. And the people are consecrated by the work of the priest. And it continues on. So all of this, the garments and the consecration... The day after day after day, generation after generation after generation serves many functions, practical, but there's one we have to focus on. It's a big, giant neon sign. It's a flashing in your face, as big as you can imagine sign that's pointing to a future for them, a future reality. Something that's unfolded in the rest of the pages of the Old Testament that there's a Messiah coming. There's a Messiah coming who would once and for all fulfill the role that's being played right here by these earthly priests. And we know who that is. Not was, because he is. Jesus Christ. We live in his light. He is the true Messiah. We have the fullness of his revelation, even in the New Testament. And we can clearly see how every single bit of this was fulfilled in him. As we sing in one of our songs, Jesus Christ truly is indeed the true and better Adam, the true and better Aaron, the true and better Moses. He is our great high priest. So that's our third and final main point today, what I wanna call the greater priesthood, the greater priesthood. You know, many of you are familiar with the book of Hebrews, We've went to it almost every week for the last several weeks. The book of Hebrews has a lot to say about the superiority of Jesus. Uh, when we finally get to the place uh, where God allows me by his grace to preach the book of Hebrews, we'll probably call it Jesus is greater or Jesus is superior, something like that, because that's what the book is about. It's speaking to Jews who have uh, believed but are now wanting to turn away from their Christianity back uh, they're wanting to apostatize, so to say, away from Christ to turn back. And the person who's giving that sermon there in the book of Hebrews is appealing with them saying, don't do it. Jesus is better. Why would you turn back to that? Because you have Jesus. Let's get a taste of this. Turn to Hebrews 7. Turn to Hebrews 7, 23.
Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Speaking of Jesus here, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because Jesus continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, that is the promise of Jesus, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Oh man, there's so many things that we can draw from this. I'm gonna draw three for you really quickly. Three, because I want you to leave here with these on your heart. First of all, when we talk about the Old Testament priesthood that's explained here, I want you to see that Jesus is greater in his holiness. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing out. Jesus is greater in holiness. See, the problem facing the priests was that they were sinners. We talked about that. They had to consecrate themselves, right? They had to clothe themselves in garments of holiness. But Jesus had no need for such a process. He had no need. He's the holy God himself, the second person, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity. He took on flesh. He didn't take on the, the priestly robes. He took on flesh and became like us in every way, except that he was without sin because he's perfectly holy as God. He's without sin. He always was, he is, and he always will be perfectly holy. So he didn't have a need to clean himself up or get some holiness outside of himself because he is holy. And so he served in his holiness because it was intrinsically his own. So he comes as the holy, perfect high priest. Second, Jesus is greater in his representation. He's not only greater in his holiness, but in his representation. The high priest represented Israel before God. Remember those stones that are upon his ephod and upon his breastpiece? He represented Israel as their federal head when he went in there. But Jesus, in an even greater way, represents us. He didn't have to put stones on his shoulders. What did he put on his shoulders? The cross. He carried us on his shoulders, bearing our judgment as he hung there on that cross. He became sin for us so that in him we might become his righteousness. Furthermore, he carried our names not on a breast piece, but in his very heart. Isaiah says that our names were engraved on his hands. He carried our names on his heart because we're in Christ. We died with Christ. We rose with Christ. We are united to him by his spirit. Even further, he represented us by providing a greater sacrifice. He didn't have to look for the perfect lamb the perfect bull without spot or blemish. No, Peter says he was the lamb without spot or blemish. He didn't have to offer animals to atone for our sins. He offered himself. Think about that. He's the priest and the sacrifice. And here's the good news that comes with that. If Christ represented us in that, then what 
does God see in us? What does he see in you? What do we talk about every time we confess our sins? That we are freely redeemed, restored, and forgiven. Why? Because Christ has forgiven us. God has forgiven us. That is true. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Behold, the new has come, the old has passed away. You and I in Christ are as accepted before God as much as he is. Mind-blowing emoji, right? If you are in Christ, you are just as accepted before God as Jesus himself is. That's representation. Third, Jesus is greater in his intercession. In his intercession. The breast piece was a reminder that the priest interceded for the people. Remember the umim and the thumim, the urim and the thumim. The priest carried those concerns before God and sought God's will for them. But in a greater way, Jesus gives us the fullness of revelation in his word and in the new covenant documents, the New Testament. But also Jesus continues, even now we're told in Romans 8 and even in Revelation chapter one, we're told that that Jesus continues to carry our concerns before the father as he intercedes for us there in heaven. It's not as as he just sit down and said, okay, I'm done, we'll wait for the end. No, he continues to intercede for us there at the right hand of God. He's forever pleading for you and for me. And because he's pleading for us, we don't have to wait to go. We go right to him, right? We go right to the throne. We bring our concerns right to God in boldness, trusting him for his mercy and his grace. We don't need bells. You don't need to make sure you have the proper garments on. All you need is the shed blood of Jesus that cleanses you and purchases the way for you to have full and unfettered access to God there at his throne. I hope you see that in the person and work of Jesus and his much greater holiness, his much greater representation, his much greater intercession in Christ, we truly have a greater priesthood. But there's more just a little bit more. Think about this. This priesthood is not limited to a particular person or even a particular class of people. Of course, Christ is the great high priest, but the aim all along, even here, you saw it in Exodus 19, has been to make a kingdom of priests for God. James mentioned that even earlier. We're a kingdom of servants As followers of Jesus Christ, we've been set apart for him by the washing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we've been called into service, into priestly service. We're his ambassadors, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We're his representatives here on earth. And you've been set apart. We talk about it all the time here at the chapel, right? Share our lives and share the gospel with others. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul tells us that we're to be imitators of God as beloved children, to walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us who are, we who are a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You and I as priests are living sacrifices, a pleasing aroma unto God because Christ himself, his offering was a pleasing aroma. So next week, we're gonna take a closer look at chapter 31. And we're gonna see how God empowers all of his people to get involved in his holy work. But for right now, I'm not gonna call you to work. I'm gonna call you to rest. I'm gonna call you to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the one true high priest. 
I want you to look around you. I preached at uh, Liberty Christian Academy on Wednesday and I made them look around at each other and say things to each other. I won't make you say things to each other. But I want you to see that you're in the company of a holy priesthood. You're in the company of saints, those who have been made holy by the work of Jesus Christ. Take a look around you. Share your life, share the gospel, share the riches and the glories of King Jesus with one another. You're his body. You belong to one another because you belong to him. And I'm thinking we're all dressed quite differently today, aren't we? We all look a little different. But it's amazing what God sees when he sees us. He sees a company of priests clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's no question who you are. There's no question whose you are. Because if you're in Christ, you belong to him and him alone. Amen? Amen. Grab your bulletins.